Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word, that we are uh, ready to uh, focus and think about all the different details that we're going to kind of skim through tonight as we probably will come close to wrapping up our study on the eight stages of the Battle of Armageddon. And so we need to focus so that we can, we can get through this material tonight and remember where all these little books in the Old Testament are found. And uh, so let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you because we recognize that you are the Lord of the universe and that you have mapped out human history uh, and you have decreed the end from the beginning so that we haven't, and you have revealed this to us so that we have an understanding of where history is headed and what our place is within that historical flow, as well as within the future kingdom. Father, as we study these things, may we not just be uh, uh, curious about end times, but recognize that all that we study is designed to impress us with your righteousness, your justice, and that there will come a time in the future, and it may not be far from now, when all things will be resolved and that you will execute your justice that you have in your long suffering postponed for so long, you will exercise your justice upon creatures who have rebelled against you. Father, we also take time tonight to remember that there are many who are on our prayer list, many who are ill, many facing uh, life-threatening diseases. We continue to pray for them and to remember them and that you would just encourage them that they would be a faithful witness uh, to the gospel in their times of, uh, of struggle, their time of uh, that they're in the hospital witnessing to doctors, nurses, and those around them. And, Father, we just pray that you would give them an extra measure of grace in their time of, of challenges and with their health. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us focus to this evening, put aside the cares of the day, the worries about tomorrow, and to focus on your word. May we be reminded through all of these details that you are a faithful God, and in this horrible end-time scenario of the campaign of Armageddon, that it is that which brings about the fulfillment of your promises that you made to Israel in the Old Testament, and thus it is a demonstration of not only your righteousness and justice, but also your faithfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In Revelation 19, we have come to that section that several weeks ago, 
couple of months ago, actually, focusing on the actual physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth at what is called the Campaign of Armageddon. It's not a battle. It's not a singular battle. Actually, most of the fighting takes place elsewhere other than in the Valley of Megiddo. That is not the location of the battle. That is really a staging area for uh, the army the armies of the Antichrist. And there are other nations that are involved, other groups of people that are involved in these campaigns. And as this comes to a head and it becomes, uh, it, it becomes obvious that God is going to interfere and that he is going to intercede in the assaults that are taking place against uh, Israel in that end-time scenario and that he will intercede to protect them, then all of the forces of the human race now are uh, inspired by Satan. They are energized by Satan and demonic doctrines and leaders, and their goal and their focus is to destroy Israel. It is Satan's last desperate shot to destroy the nation Israel to prevent God from fulfilling those promises that he made in the Old Testament and thus in a desperate plea to show that uh, God really can't be the God he claims to be, really can't control creatures who have free will, and that he really can't bring about his, his desired plan. That's what uh, the campaign of Armageddon is all about. It's Satan's last shot to destroy Israel. And one of the greatest sins any nation can commit, any individual can commit in history, is anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism has its root in really the Satan's reaction to the Abrahamic covenant that God made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is the foundation of how every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to treat the Jews and Israel, not because they are wonderful people or not because of any, uh, any other factor that they deserve on their own, but simply because God chose them and set them apart for a specific role in history. The covenants were given to uh, Israel, as Paul states in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, to Israel belong the covenants and the promises, and that God is going to fulfill those those promises. So we have been looking at this end-time scenario that focuses on on Israel. And as anti-Semitism has so often uh, clouded and besmirched Christianity down through the last 2,000 years, and one of the greatest blights on Christianity is the, has been the history of Christian anti-Semitism, this is taken to new heights by the evil of the Antichrist during the last half of the tribulation that culminates in this campaign. So it begins with a, a gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. They move into this staging area of the Valley of Megiddo up in the Galilee after he has been involved in a military campaign in Egypt and he's heard a rumor from the north and from the east. And then as the eastern forces have, uh, have come in, there has been a battle where the forces of the, of the Antichrist have destroyed Babylon. And we're told in Revelation chapter 18 that the kings of the earth mourned over this. And, but yet the, 
In chapter 17, we're told that it was the ten horns, the kings that are in alliance with the Antichrist, that they are the ones who burned Babylon with fire. So we studied the destruction of Babylon. And then the next is the attack, full-scale assault on Jerusalem to try to completely destroy Jerusalem and to wipe out all of the Jews that remain there. There's one segment that has stayed in Jerusalem and another segment that escaped during the last half of the tribulation, and they are in hiding in the rugged territory to the southeast of of, uh, Israel in the area of Jordan today, the ancient kingdom of Edom in the area of Petra or Basra. And so after the fall of Jerusalem was the focus of our uh, study the, the last time, and the assault of the Antichrist's uh, armies at Basra, and then it is there that <clears throat> this remnant of Israel, representing the nation, turns as a whole, inviting, calling upon Jesus to come and save them. And when we closed last, last time, I was focusing on uh, Joel chapter 2, and this is one of the most uh, significant passages that we have in the Old Testament for, for helping us understand these end times, Joel 2 and Joel 3, and we'll come back to Joel 3 later on this evening. But as the end time comes, we're told in Joel 3.32, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, the word saved there can mean to be healed, can be rescued from physical calamity, can be delivered from a dangerous situation, and it also is applied to uh, spiritual salvation. But in this context, it's not talking about spiritual salvation as it is talking about physical deliverance as uh, the nation Israel is on the uh, very cusp of being wiped out by the Antichrist and by the Gentile armies. And so this segment calls upon the Lord just as the corporate representatives of Israel at the time of Jesus rejected him. This group will accept him. They will call upon him, and he will come as the Messiah deliverer of Israel. Now, that's different from their individual salvation as individual believers. And I pointed that out in the past that we have to make sure we maintain that distinction because most of these uh, Jews that have escaped into the wilderness have done so because they respond to Jesus' command in Matthew 24 that at, at the time of the abomination of desolation, when you see these signs occur, flee immediately to the mountains. Well, the only people who are going to respond to that are those who understand Jesus knew what he was talking about, which implies that they understand that he is God, that he is who he claimed to be the Messiah. And so those who flee, for the most part, are those who all have already been regenerate. They've already trusted in Jesus as a Messiah. But as they come together down in uh, Edom, then they call on uh, corporately call upon the Lord. They conf- their sins are confessed corporately, just as Daniel confessed sins for the whole of the nation in Daniel at the beginning of Daniel chapter nine. And then we have the second coming of Christ. This is His return. And I know that it, because of certain passages, and we'll look at a couple of them tonight that talk about the Lord returning to the Mount of Olives. I think that many people think that when the Lord comes back 
at the time of his return, that's the first place he goes is to the Mount of Olives. It's the last place he goes, not the first place that he goes. And first he's going to come back to rescue the Jews that are uh, under siege down in Petra. And so the Lord returns at the second coming to deliver them. And he is pictured, this is the picture that we've seen in Revelation 19 that summarizes this, that he comes riding on a white horse, that he has wearing a robe that's dipped in blood, that he has the name Word of God written upon his thigh, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth, which indicates that he's coming in judgment, coming to uh, to destroy. And the reason he comes to this group, as I pointed out, is that they have fled there, according to Revelation 12:14, which told us that uh, the woman who represented Israel uh, fled into the wilderness, that God provided her with some sort of miraculous ability to escape the Antichrist, and then there she is provided for by God. And Revelation 12:14 said that she's nourished there for a time, that's one, times, that's two more, so that's three, and a half a time, so that's three and a half years. Now, the last period of history is Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period. Half of a seven-year period is three and a half years, so the tribulation period is a seven-year period that is divided into these two equal halves of three and a half years each. Sometimes the Bible talks about these as 1,260 days because the calendar is based on a on a 30-day lunar calendar, uh, 1,260 days is the same as three and a half years, and that's the same uh, as a time times and a half a time. And so they have fled down through this uh, incredibly harsh terrain in the uh, southern part of, of Judah and down in the region between uh, southern uh, Israel and southern Judea and, and Edom, and they flee into this, these, these highlands, these canyons, these rocks in Edom. And Micah talks about that as like sheep being protected in a sheepfold. And Micah uh, 2.12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a, I will put them together like sheep of the fold. And the Hebrew word there for the sheepfold is batra. And then it goes on to say, like a flock in the midst of their pasture, they shall make a loud noise because of so many people. So it is this picture of being placed within an enclosure where they are protected in the same way that many times the Middle Eastern shepherds would build a rocky wall uh, to enclose the area where they would bed the sheep down at night in order to protect them uh, from any kinds of uh, varmints that would come in, uh, come in to destroy them. So God has them down in Basra and protecting them during the time that all of these other events are taking place in Jerusalem. Now, there are several passages that do focus on this area in Basra that help us to see that's the, the focal point here. In Isaiah chapter 34, just turn with me there. We'll hit two or three of these other passages. Uh, there is a chapter that deals with judgment upon the Gentiles. Sometimes goyim is translated nations, but it has the idea of focus on the Gentiles as opposed to Israel. 
And so there is the invitation, the announcement that is made in uh, 34.1. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. That's our first clue. This is a future event. It is God bringing judgment against all of the nations. It's not an Old Testament event where it's focused on Babylon or focused on on Assyria. His fury against all their armies, he's utterly destroyed them, and he has given them over to slaughter. Now, this is what is called a future, uh, a future perfect tense. It, that means it has a, uh, it's a f- future use of the perfective tense, rather. It's using a past tense to speak of a future event because that event is so certain it is spoken of as if it has already taken place. So he will destroy them, give them over to slaughter. Uh, verse 3, also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses. Now, we're going to look at some other passages in a little while, but what we begin to see here is the incredible human slaughter that takes place during this, this time. The, the, the casualties that occur are, are numbered in the, in the millions. And we just can't fathom anything like that. And some people would say, well, well, this is just something that's so, so terrible and horrible. And you Christians, you're just a bunch of bloodthirsty, uh, people who just want to see everybody killed. That this isn't what we're saying. This is what God is saying. He has extended his grace again and again and again to the, uh, people, the earth dwellers, as we've seen in, in Revelation. And yet they have resisted. They've rejected. They have continued to, uh, shake their fist at God and refuse to subordinate themselves to his authority. And so finally it has come to this point where he must bring about this horrific judgment. So verse 3 says, All the slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. So this is simply a, a hyperbolic way of talking about how extensive the bloodshed and the slaughter will be. Then verse 4, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. And we've seen this same terminology, for example, in uh, Isaiah chapter 3 in relationship to the, or Isaiah chapter 2 in relationship to the day of the Lord. Also in um, Revelation chapter 6 in talking about the sixth seal uh, judgment. And this indicates again uh, this isn't talking about either one of those two judgments, but it shows that just as in some of the previous judgments in, in the period of the tribulation, the sixth seal judgment specifically, there are going to be these things that occur in the heavens. And all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the tree and its fruit falling from a fig tree. So there is this appearance that, that even the heavens are shaken uh, probably a meteor shower, asteroids, something of that nature uh, takes place. So there's definitely a physical event that occurs bringing damage on the earth. The earth is pretty much laid waste uh, all over the earth. There's not going to be a whole lot left that is really habitable at this point. And then uh, the Lord speaks in verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom, and the picture here 
is that this this judgment is such that it will this sword is the sword of judgment and that it is uh, prepared in heaven for the execution of judgment upon all of the nations. And the result of that in verse 6 is that the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats. And the picture here is that, uh, one of a great sacrifice of these people. With the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now this never occurred historically. So there was never this kind of event in the history of Edom, so this must be a future event. And then verse 7 concludes by saying, The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. Now that fits with the same imagery that we uh, see in Revelation where it speaks of the fact that the um, that the blood will... Uh, flow for an area of uh, basically 180 miles, which is the distance from Dan in the north down to uh, Basra in the, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Beersheba in the south, all the way over to Basra. So it is a time of incredible, incredible destruction that occurs there as the Lord Jesus Christ returns to rescue Israel. And this same sort of phrase that occurs in relationship to uh, to Edom uh, takes place uh, is stated in Isaiah 63:1. There we go, Isaiah 63:1. Who is this who comes from Edom? So the author is speaking as he's observing one who has now accomplished the judgment at Edom. And he is returning from this bloodbath. says, who is this one who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? See, they have been dipped in blood. It's been such a bloody, violent event that it is blood is just splattered all over his garments. Uh, this one who is glorious in his apparel. So there's this, this contrast that uh, between the glory that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and the fact that he is covered in the blood and the gore of battle. Uh, he's traveling in the greatness of his strength. Uh, he's identified then in the next phrase as, I who speak in righteous, mighty to save. This tells us two things. His, his judgment here, this destruction, this, all of this violence and bloodletting, is done in righteousness. Now that just strikes the the unbeliever, the person who has no understanding of biblical truth, as just a, a totally incongruous uh, statement. Because they operate on a presupposition in many cases where any kind of violence, any kind of fighting, any kind of massive bloodletting like this is just inherently wrong. And so this th- these kinds of things today. Uh, are very difficult for uh, many people to to understand about what Christians believe because they, over the last 40 or 50 years, Satan has really promoted the lie that that violence in each and every case is wrong and that God is really this meek, mild, passive God who's just going to let everybody get away with whatever they 
they want to get away with. And that is difficult for us sometimes in various uh, perhaps witnessing situations because people may raise questions. Well, I've heard Christians believe this or they believe that. And so I think it's important for us to sort of sidestep, learn how to sidestep some of these issues because somebody who's unregenerate can't understand these things and we can't expect them to. Uh, we can just sort of you know, make an end run and get back to the real issue, which has to do with Jesus Christ and his, his death on the cross. Now, the writer Isaiah says in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? And see, when we look at this and we bring in this whole winepress imagery, it is the same imagery that we saw as we studied in Revelation. In Revelation chapter uh, chapter 14, verses 14 to 16, there's this summary, or excuse me, Revelation uh, uh, 14, 17 to 20, picks up this same imagery uh, in terms of the wine press. Uh, and this is a summary before the bold judgments began. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. Notice, not in the city, but outside the city, which is where the battle takes uh, place. And this is where we have the passage, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is about 180 miles. And so that picks up the same imagery of judgment being uh, the, the treading of the grapes in the winepress. Now, the one who comes up, keep hitting that too many times. The one who comes up who is uh, blood splattered says in response to the question, I have trodden the wine press alone. Notice, I'll point this out again. When the Lord comes back, even though he's accompanied by armies of angels and the and church age believers, he does the fighting alone. Not we're we're just there as as the support team, the the heavenly witnesses, but it is the Lord and the Lord alone who does the fighting. He says, "I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart." Now again, we have that word vengeance that needs to be. Uh, understood. It's not personal vindictiveness. It is not per- the seeking of personal revenge. The Hebrew word has to do more with, with the execution of judgment, that which uh, necessarily must pay for a crime. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a strong, righteous, judicial word. And this name, this, this phraseology, the day of vengeance, is one that is often used in the uh, Old Testament prophets as a description for the day of the Lord and these end-time events of divine judgment. And then verse 5, 
I looked, but there was no one to help and wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. My own fury had sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought their strength uh, to the earth. So this is a picture here now. We've seen Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63 focusing on this incredible calamity, uh, one-of-a-kind bloodletting that occurs in, in Edom. Now, there's another passage that, also, that confirms this in Habakkuk. In uh, Habakkuk, rather, in Habakkuk 3.3, God came from Teman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. Now, Teman and Mount Paran are both located in, uh, in, e- in Edom, in that same area as Basra and um, uh, uh, Petra. And Teman is thought to have been located in the southern part of, of Edom. And so it is uh, God, the Holy One, who comes and his glory covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Now we'll look at uh, Habakkuk 3 uh, a little bit later on in order to bring think, tie some things together there. But, Hebrew, but Habakkuk, or Habakkuk rather, 3, 3 clearly speaks of what God is going to do at the time that he returns to uh, to rescue Israel. So Timon and Mount Paran speak of the same event. Hebrews, I mean Habakkuk 3.3 3 is always stated to be, uh, is often stated to be a prophecy. Some think it was fulfilled in the past in 586, but there's uh, several things that are stated there that indicate it has to have a future fulfillment. Then in Matthew 24.30 we read, uh, Jesus said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory as he descends. In Jude 14 and 15, we're told uh, the Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints, 10,000 of his saints. So all of the, uh, this is literally his holy ones, and that term can refer to angels and it can refer to uh, believers, and I think it, 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 it includes all of them. It includes church-age saints as well as uh, the holy ones, the angels. And they come, verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it's clearly against the ungodly. Four times we have the word just to make sure nobody missed it. And then we have the another event that ties here, Revelation 19, 17, and 18, down through 21, speaks of the enormity, as I pointed out earlier, from the Isaiah 63 passage of the, of the violence. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now, this is almost a revolting image as these carrion eaters come in order to begin to clean up the dead. Now, every now and then you hear the purveyors of pop prophecy get out there and try to figure out the signs of the times. The signs of the times all take place within the seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week. They don't precede it. This is, this is one of the things that really casts aspersion on us 
as dispensationalists, and I've been reading various different materials in the last couple of weeks, and we get accused of certain things uh, because of the sort of untaught, unguarded statements that uh, many preachers have made and some others who should have known better. As they look out on different events today, for example, we've had a number of earthquakes this year, and there are those who will say, see, where there's an intensification of earthquakes in the 20th century, and that was one of the things that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24, that there would be wars, rumors of wars, and etc. plus earthquakes. So we're getting close. No, we're not. Steve Austin, who was the speaker at the, uh, at the conference this year, a few weeks ago, uh, gave a paper. He's a geologist. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with him, he has his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania. And he gave a um, very well-developed, documented paper at a pre-trib conference uh, a little over 10 years ago where he showed that based on uh, the records that we have from the past, that there is no increase in the number of earthquakes today. So we can't go around saying, well, there are more earthquakes than there have, than there have been in the past. And then and the reason I point that out is you also will hear people say, oh, there have been more birds gathering in North Africa. And they see a lot more birds in, in, in the area uh, of the eastern Mediterranean. And so this is a sign of the time the birds are gathering for Armageddon. And they didn't get that from the midnight sun either. They got it off of, you know, from, from some, some preacher who read this somewhere and decides it's a sign of the times. There are no signs that will be fulfilled. You may see things that, that are precursors, that are trends that seem to intensify, but the Lord may not come for a hundred years or five hundred years. The tribulation need not be right around the corner as much as we may look at at dark clouds on the horizon of our world and say, oh, things look really bad. Things have looked much worse in terms of world history many times in the past, and things look much, much worse just a, a little over... Uh, uh, 75, 80 years ago with the rise of Hitler and the Nazis and the expansion, the military expansion of Nazi Germany during World War II. If you just read about the battles and the number of young German men that got killed in World War II, you must have, uh, the only thing I can imagine is that the women must have been doing nothing from 1910 on but having babies and they were all male. It's just amazing how many Germans died in World War II from this little country uh, that's that's uh, smaller than Texas, how they managed to produce that many men uh, in that short a time, in that age, from 40 and under, who were slaughtered on the battlefields of Europe. And what they did in terms of the horrors from the Holocaust to just the the other events of war that transpired both in Eastern Europe and in Western Europe just boggles the mind. But we don't see anything like that happening now. Uh, the potential is always there. So we have to be very careful not to become a little myopic in terms of, in terms of uh, prophecy and think that, oh, it's going to happen in our generation. So the, but what will happen at the end of the battle is a cleanup campaign. And God is going to bring in the scavengers to clean up the battlefield 
and from all of the dead bodies that are there, and that's what's explained in Revelation 19, 17, 18, and down in verse 21. Uh, the rest are killed with the sword that proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, this fits with the prophecy in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 19, uh, we are told that there is going to be this, this uh, massive feast of, uh, of carrion in the, in the end times. And it begins in uh, Ezekiel 39, 17, and talks about, uh, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of, of Bashan, that's the, uh, Gosh, uh, the Golan Heights area. Uh, you shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood until you are drunk. At my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, you shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord God. And then he says, I will set my glory among the nations. So this tells us it's clearly an end times uh, event. And the purpose of all of this, verse 22, so the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And then the Gentiles will also know this, beginning in verse 23 and extending down through the uh, rest of that chapter shows the uh, witness to the Gentiles that they will know uh, that God has worked in the house of Israel and has restored them uh, to, to the land. Verse 25 and 26 states, God says, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. There is a Future restoration of, the, of Israel. There's one regathering that's in unbelief. I believe that's occurring now. And one that occurs at the end of the tribulation just prior to, uh, just, just there at the time of the second coming. That is this regathering spoken of in Ezekiel, uh, 39, 25, uh, and following in verse 27, when I brought them back from the peoples, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back. That's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30. And left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now, I was. Uh, we could go to Habakkuk 3, but you can look at it. Uh, Habakkuk 3, rather, is... Also a focal point, it is prophetic. Uh, Habakkuk is putting himself in the place, uh, time-wise, of someone living at the time of the return of the Lord. And so this is the, the focus. It is uh, the occasion for Habakkuk is, of course, the judgment coming in 586. But chapter 3 goes beyond what happens in that time to a future event. So following the Lord's return, he rescues Israel down in Basra, and then he is going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, and he is going to begin uh, to move north, leading these this remnant of, of Israel from Basra. And there's not a lot indicating this in Scripture, but the key passage perhaps 
is in Zechariah chapter 12. So turn with me to Zechariah 12. Remember when these Old Testament prophets are writing there, they, they, none of them have the whole picture. They have a snapshot here, a snapshot there. You can't, no one has all of the details and they just, they, they put these things together and later as we come with the, with, especially with the book of Revelation with Matthew 24, where all these threads are then uh, brought together. Now at the end of, of, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, or in the middle of Zechariah chapter 12, there's the initial uh, prophecy from the Lord that announces that Jerusalem will be the center of this conflict. Verse 2, Jerusalem will be a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Notice, it's Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen then, on this day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. So there's the assault on Jerusalem, but there's a specific mention of Judah because of the role of this tribe in the end-time army as the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Verse 5 says, And the governors of Judah shall say in the heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. And so we see is the leadership in the tribe of Judah. As they see what is happening, they recognize the danger of the Jews trapped in Jerusalem, and that is their motivation and strength, but it's related to to the coming of the Lord. He recognizes the Lord of hosts, their God. And then verse 6 we read, In that day, the day the Lord says, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile. Now, a fire pan here is not the normal word for a censer. It's actually the word that's used uh, of the labor. It's, so the normal use of this, this, this vessel was to hold water, but now it's going to be used to hold coal. So what, what's being indicated here is that this isn't the normal use uh, the normal function of the tribe of Judah. But in this case, it will be like taking a fire pan, a sensor of coals, and placing that on dry kindling. And it will ignite the kindling and ignite all of the fire. So we're told the governors of Judah will be like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. So it's Judah that is the 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 leading in this, uh, this army that comes up from the south. And we're told in verse 7, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, there, in, there out front, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater uh, than that of Judah. So Judah is uh, given this place of honor in, the, in their return to Jerusalem because that is the tribe of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the tribe of the Messiah. Now, at this time, they're going to come back into uh, this valley. Now, the projector doesn't make it as clear, but what you have on the left is the Mount of Olives. Down below, you have the Kidron Valley. You can see just a little bit left of dead center the gold uh, dome, which which is the Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount. And the Kidron Valley is thought by most scholars to be this valley of Jehoshaphat where the final stage of fighting occurs and which will then become the location of the final judgment 
against the nations. Now, there are some that suggest the Valley of Jehoshaphat uh, isn't here. It's just south of, of, of Jerusalem towards Bethlehem, which is related to the time when the uh, Israelites came together uh, and, and uh, had a victory celebration at the Valley of, of Barakah at the time of, of Jehoshaphat. But that would just be uh, to the left and over the ridge. So it's it's all in the same general area. And then this is spoken of in Zechariah 14, that the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That's what we studied before. That siege has been going on while the Lord comes to rescue the remnant in Basra. And then he leads the fight against the nations. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. That is when he comes to the Mount of Olives. And we read on, east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. Now, this is going to enable the remnant that's been trapped in Jerusalem to escape. In the 1984, excuse me, 1948 War for Independence uh, that uh, Israel had, there were a number of Jews that were trapped in the old city by the Arab armies, and they were there for uh, several months, and the uh, Jews kept fighting. Uh, the Israeli army kept fighting to try to, to breach the walls to get into the uh, southern part of the, of the city in order to deliver them and, and just some of the ways that they got food in, some of the ways that they provided uh, supplies from them were just, just incredible. And finally, there was an American general who came along, uh, a Jewish, Jewish by, by ethnicity, who had been a uh, uh, general in the U.S. Army during World War II, uh, came in and they they did an end run. They they just cut a whole new road down where an ancient Roman road had run, and they ran supplies uh, in. But it was it was too late, and they the the Jews lost the city of Jerusalem in 1948 and wasn't recovered till 1967. And when the Arab armies came in, they just obliterated and destroyed everything in the old city that and in, in the Jewish quarter of the old city. They had no place to escape, but these Jews will have a place to escape when the Lord returns and he splits the Mount of Olives. And this is a, a church that's been built on the site. It's called uh, uh, Flavius, Flavius Domit, which is the place where the Lord cried, the Lord wept over Jerusalem. And this is looking just straight out the east gate of, uh, of the Temple Mount, towards the Mount of Olives. So this is the area where that split will occur. This is a side view, so it will be coming from the right and splitting across uh, the center of the, uh, of the Mount of Olives in order to provide for that escape for the, for the Israelites. So verse um, 4 says that the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move to the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Now, we don't, nobody has a clue what Azal is, but it's somewhere east of Jerusalem towards the Dead Sea. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints 
uh, with you. And then he goes on to say, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will be diminished. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. That's because of the sun being darkened and the moon being turned to blood and all of these things. That at evening it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, which takes out the Dead Sea. It won't be dead anymore. Uh, the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half towards the western sea, and both summer and winter it will occur. So this is going to be a river, uh, a living river, because it's fresh water that will restore, uh, restore the Dead Sea. And the Lord, verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And then it goes on to speak of how the, at that time that the the uh, people will be as one and worship the Lord. So this takes us to that point, the eighth stage, which is the uh, victory ascent on the Mount of Olives. This is the real triumphal entry when Jesus will come on the Mount of Olives and will begin, will destroy the armies of the Antichrist, uh, we'll go back next time, back into Revelation 19. He sends the Antichrist and the false prophet to Sheol, I mean, to the lake, directly to the lake of fire. And then he sends uh, Lucifer or the devil to, uh, tar, uh, uh, to the abyss where he's chained for a, a thousand years and begins a series of judgments, and one of which is the judgment on the nations as identified in Joel 3, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's in the valley of Jehoshaphat. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill, Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. So that is a promise that has not happened. These are clearly future events. So we fit this back into the passage we're studying in Revelation 19. And there in verses 11 to 13 we read, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's what we're seeing when he comes at Edom, rescues the Jews there, destroys the armies of the Antichrist that are there. That's the war he wages. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's the from the battles. And his name is called uh, the Word of God. And um, we read that on um, the armies which are in heaven clothed in linen, white and clean, uh, following him on white horses. And that on his thigh is written a name which is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So all of this brings us to that that final stage of the victory that the Lord has over the armies of the Antichrist. Now, back in Revelation 19, we have a few minutes left. Back in Revelation 19, as we finish that section dealing with the return of the Lord, 
then we see the beginning of the judgment starting in uh, verse 17. Now, this is, again, just given in a summary fashion in Revelation because the details are given elsewhere in Scripture, and we'll have to put these together to look at the different judgments that take place at this time. There's a 75-day interval that comes between the literal return of the Lord uh, in Revelation 19 and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And it's during that 75-day interval that a number of different things occur, including a cleanup campaign and the, these various judgments that will, uh, that will take place. So verse 17 reads, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out. We've seen this already tonight, calling for the birds to come and to begin to clean up all of the carrion. And then verse 19, I saw the beast. That would be the Antichrist. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, I always get this question. Don't they, are they cast alive in their mortal bodies? It, the text doesn't say, but no, if they were cast in their mortal bodies, they would just be completely incinerated in seconds. It is obvious that if they are going to continue in the lake of fire, feeling pain, that, that uh, in this process that they are going to be given the same kind of body that unbelievers have to, uh, to, as they go through the torments and the pain of, of eternal judgment. And that's another doctrine we're going to have to come back and deal with as we go through the next couple of chapters is the doctrine of eternal condemnation because there have been a number of, of evangelicals, in, surprisingly, in the last 20 or 30 years who have picked up a liberal view that came out in the late 19th century that judgment in the lake of fire is not eternal, that God just couldn't do that. He's just not fair. He, he's a loving God. He's not going to put his creatures through an eternity of, uh, of pain and torments. And so the question is raised, do we have, is the lake of fire really for eternity or is it just for a short time and then the annihilation of the unbeliever? So we'll address that. But these two are cast alive. So somewhere in the process they're given a different body, one that will uh, enable them to uh, be alive and to still experience all of the excruciating pain of the lake of fire. And then verse 21 says, And the rest uh, were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds are filled with their flesh. So that concludes the tribulation period. Then we have an interim period where we see these other judgments begin to take place. For example, the first judgment mentioned in chapter 20 is the dragon, the serpent, uh, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit and placed there, and a seal is placed on him that he will not deceive the, deceive the nations uh, till the thousand years are finished. And then he is released. So this gets into the millennium after the second coming, but there are other things that take place here 
which will be the focal point of our study next time as we begin to look at the 75-day interval and the judgments that occur between the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and go through these things this evening to realize that this is a manifestation of your righteousness. You come in a righteous judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is called righteous and true. It is a time of vengeance, which is a righteous judgment on uh, on rebellious mankind. And this is necessary because of the evil that sin is. Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who has provided a rescue for us through his death on the cross, and that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal salvation, and therefore we will not go through this time. We will not be under that eternal judgment, and as believers in the church age, we will not go through the tribulation period. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.